Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. We are starting in chapter 7 of Acts this morning. Fun fact, I did the math and by my highly scientific calculations, we are exactly on pace to finish Acts by the end of 2022. So if that sounds too quick, let me know. I'll slow her down. So maybe I shouldn't give statistics like that. (laughs) It probably doesn't help me. But chapter 7 of Acts, it's worth spending our time on. It's a big deal. The entire trajectory of the church since we started the Gospel of Matthew itself, everything is about to change. Things are about to become really hard and really, really good. But chapter 7 also kind of presents me with a problem. The whole chapter is almost entirely Stephen's one speech. It's 60 verses long. The last two sermons I've preached, each sermon was exactly on seven verses. <laughs> so, um, obviously, I can't preach the whole thing this morning. Don't worry about that. I'm not even going to try. But the problem is, there's, because it's one big speech and because the way Stephen frames it, his argument sort of keeps building up, there's no natural place to stop. So there's no way to do this, which isn't a little bit ugly, and I think we just have to live with that. I did my best to divide it in two. We're going to lose something by doing this, but I think it's going to work. And because, as I said in the announcements, I'm not preaching in June, part two is going to come in July. So (laughs) so try to remember what I'm going to say. I don't know. I don't know. So as Keith always says, I don't really remember. I have a whole bunch of fish, and I have to eat them or something. I don't know. Let's go. Last time, Luke told us about this new deacon, this new deacon named Stephen, how he was full of grace and power. And then we saw how his own community, his own Hellenist community, turned against him and then convinced the Sanhedrin to arrest him. Remember, crucially, it is the authorities and the people who have turned against Stephen. So this whole dynamic so far, the thing that kept the Sanhedrin from arresting Jesus sooner, the thing which kept the Sanhedrin from uh, doing away with the apostles is the fact that they feared the crowds. And that's no longer an element. The crowds are now on their side. So we left our brother Stephanos standing alone before the most powerful men in Israel, And the scripture reads, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel, but that didn't stop them from coming after him. Do you remember what he was charged with? This is from uh, chapter six. The first charge was, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And the second charge was, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So essentially, if we kind of break it down, and even by the way he replies, we can see he's accused of three blasphemies. Blasphemy is like speaking falsely or harshly or, or slanderously, right? Spreading untruth. So he's accused of blaspheming Moses, 
And when you say Moses, you mean Moses and the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, they're always connected. So he's blaspheming Moses, he's blaspheming God, and he's blaspheming the temple. And there are essentially no holier things in Judaism than those three things. So let's actually get into seven, verse one. And the high priest said, are these things so? Caiaphas is back at it. I don't know if he did more high priestly duties or worked as an interrogator. It's pretty hard to tell the difference at this point. Because we've seen him interrogate Jesus. We've seen him interrogate the apostles a bunch of times. Now it is Stephen's turn. And he's asking, is it true? Have you blasphemed Moses, God, and the temple, Stephen? And so Stephen replies, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Get out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. I have a friend named Bill. Maybe I've talked about this before. I, he was one of my roommates in Israel. The thing we bugged him about the most is he, he never answered a question directly. Every time we asked him a question, he'd start talking about something unrelated. And, it, you know, eventually that starts to drive you crazy. This is definitely not a direct answer to the question. This probably started to drive the Sanhedrin a little crazy. But the Holy Spirit is at work here. What we're about to see is Stephen is going to deliver an extremely sophisticated sermon where he is able to answer all of the accusations at once and then do even more. And so this sermon is actually, it is very carefully structured. And, and here's a, one outline of the structure. So verses 2 to 8, he's going to talk about Abraham. He just sort of started. Verses 9 to 16, he's going to talk about Joseph. And verses 17 to 43, a big chunk, he's going to talk about Moses. And his discussion about Moses is going to become about God. It's going to transition pretty naturally. And that's where we're actually going to stop today. That's what we're going to cover. And then next time, Stephen's going to talk about the temple, and then he's going to talk about the spirit. And after that, we're going to see how the Sanhedrin respond to him. So the first thing that Stephen does is he addresses the Sanhedrin with respect. The formal way of addressing a member of the Sanhedrin was father. You would call them father, and that's exactly what he does. He's not being belligerent. He's not being rude to them. He's, he's careful. He's care careful and respectful with the way he communicates. And he says, the glory of God appeared, or the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. The God of glory is like, it's a very formal way for him to be speaking. It's an especially beautiful title for God in, in the Jewish faith. Because it's a proclamation of the holiness and the grandeur of God. Remember, Stephen was accused of blaspheming God. He needs to make it very clear he has not blasphemed God. Then, all of, the, then of all things, when he's accused of blasphemy, he starts to talk about Abraham. He starts recapping the origin stories of Israel to the Sanhedrin. And the thing is, every Jew alive would have known all of these things, let alone the scribes of Israel. 
he's accused of blasphemy and he starts talking about national history. Like, what is he up to? He says, God appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. This was a perfect opportunity for a map, but I've got so much ground to cover, I even had to skip the map. So Mesopotamia would be roughly modern-day Iraq and then into Syria. And Mesopotamia was located right between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, where it was very fertile. And in the ancient world, the distant ancient world of Abraham, it contained some of the most sophisticated civilizations in the world. Abraham actually came from one of these civilizations. He came from the great city of Ur. So he was a city boy, and God called Abraham to leave the center of human civilization and then to travel to a land totally unknown to him, totally by faith. Verses 4 and 5. Then he went from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Chaldeans here is one of the names the Old Testament uses for Babylonians. So he's, he's also in the region of Babylon. Abraham leaves this home country, but his family travels just about exactly halfway to the promised land, and they settle in the city of Haran. And if you remember, like Stephen is summarizing here, but when you go back and you read in the Old Testament, it's Abraham's father who's called to go to the promised land, Terah, but he decides to settle in Haran. He makes it halfway, and then it's Abraham who's called to finish the journey. After his father dies, he leaves for Canaan, but Abraham does not inherit a single foot of the land. Instead, when he arrives, it's then promised to his offspring, and the only problem is he doesn't have any kids. So Stephen is summarizing, but Abraham's story is really good. I mean, we're going to hit all the classics today. This is one of the classics. But do you see Stephen's little note in this? He has this little address to his audience. He says, Abraham came into this land in which you are now living. And it's very clever because Stephen is saying that the fact that we, the Jews, Abraham's offspring, are standing here having this conversation in what was formerly Canaan is proof that God keeps these impossible promises. We are the living proof. Why would Stephen point that out? It's because he's not a blasphemer. He recognizes God's faithfulness to Israel and he praises God for it. Verse 6, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. As you may know, you know, things get really complicated for Israel in the beginning of their history because not only will it be Abraham's offspring who inherit the land, not Abraham himself, but it's not going to be clear sailing for his offspring, not by a long shot. They are going to wander in foreign lands, they are going to be enslaved, and they are going to be afflicted, and this will take about 400 years. But God is faithful. 
God in the end will bring his judgment upon Egypt and he will free his people from hardship and they will gather to worship him. God is faithful. God remains Israel's defender. Stephen is not a blasphemer. I think you're starting to get it. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. God made this covenant, this agreement with Israel. Circumcision became the sign that Abraham and his descendants are set apart from the rest of the world. That they're going to be blessed with offspring and that they're going to inherit God's promises. And so God provides, just as he promised. You have Isaac, you have Jacob, and then you have the 12, the original 12, I guess. Stephen knows and he respects Israel's covenant. All of this is Torah 101. He is not a blasphemer. And so then we jump three generations forward, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. The patriarchs here, he's referring to the 12 sons of Jacob, Abraham's great-grandkids. And so now we're into the Joseph section of his sermon. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Not again. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery out of jealousy. But God has other plans for Joseph. God protected Joseph and God worked through Joseph. God was with the one, the one son who was rejected. And already Stephen is putting in a little bit of a hint of where this whole thing is going. God is with the one who was rejected. God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So Stephen is saying, how do we know that God was with Joseph? He rescued Joseph from all of his afflictions. He gave Joseph Pharaoh's favor. And then to top it all off, he made Joseph ruler over all Egypt, plus the household who rejected him in the first place. All of this for a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers. It is pretty good evidence of the favor of God. So Stephen is going to keep summarizing the story, and it's an amazing story. And, of course, you can always remember, if you want the full thing, it's right at the end of Genesis. You know, it's been published forever. But I'll just read Stephen's summary, and then we'll move on, starting at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt... He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. The essence of the story is this, that Joseph, the rejected one, he became his brother's savior. 
You know, Davy just learned this story and he just loved it because Joseph tricks his brothers. That, that made perfect sense to Davy. <laughs> I guess four-year-olds, huh? Ultimately, Joseph dies in Egypt and he's brought back into Canaan, the land promised to his great-grandfather, and he's buried. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, and there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Sounds like the opening lines of Exodus. He's pretty good at this. After all this, as it was nearing time for Israel to inherit the land, the hardest part came, slavery and affliction, as they're on their way to the promise. Israel had multiplied, and Abraham's great-grandchildren had become a large nation. And during this time, a pharaoh rises in Egypt who didn't remember Joseph and everything he had done for Egypt, and he felt threatened by Israel. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. The promise of hardship. Pharaoh forces enslaved Israel to expose their male children to drowning in order to slowly and horribly weaken and undermine and destroy the nation of Israel. And I don't know about you, I'll say it briefly, but given what's in the news cycle with those children that they found, I wonder how much of the heart of Pharaoh was at work in Canada at that time to degrade a nation. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So it's into this context, it's into this most desperate hour that the hero of the Torah, Moses, is born. And Stephen says that he was beautiful in God's sight. The scripture never says that. The Torah never says that. What he means is he had God's favor. He was just like Joseph. And when he was exposed, when he was cast into the Nile as an infant, the very daughter of Pharaoh found him and then adopted him. And ironically, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds, contrary to his own belief. He became a member of Pharaoh's household, and he received the perfect training for everything that God was going to call him to do, because he would one day be a leader, he would be an orator, he would be a judge, and he would be a general. God had a plan for this man. And so at this point, listening to this, you may be wondering with the Sanhedrin, Stephen, where are you going with this? What is the point? And for that, we just need to hold on. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them was being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. When Stephen says he visited his brothers, he's not talking about, you know, stopping by on a Sunday afternoon. He just happened to visit. What visited means in this sense, it's like the biblical 
uh, sense of visit, you know, like a visitation of God. He interceded for his fellow Hebrews when they were in despair. He got involved in their lives. Moses saw a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian and he defended his brother and he killed the Egyptian. The oppression of his people was right before his eyes and he acted. And he did this. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses thought his fellow Hebrews would see him as a deliverer, Instead, they see him as a threat. They reject him. Hint, hint, again. We're getting, marching towards Stephen's punchline. And so he summarizes a little bit again. I'll I'll start reading at verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So not only does Israel fail to recognize Moses as their deliverer, but he is also utterly rejected. He flees to the wilderness of Midian in exile, separate from his people. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Famous scene, of course. Every time I imagine this, I'm going to see Charlton Heston. It's just impossible not to, isn't it? I'll continue for a little bit. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place which you are standing is holy ground. It's interesting Holy ground in the middle of nowhere by a bush. What makes the ground holy? You know, the the rabbis, they would later teach that there is no place too desolate for the presence of God. Holy ground is where God is. And that's the heart of what Stephen is driving at here. And it'll make sense in the end. I'm probably only going to be able to get to it next sermon. But he's making a sharp point there about the temple. Verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. God chooses the rejected one. He sends a savior to his own people who have already refused him. And it's interesting now because where did we just see this? This was exactly the dynamic in Joseph's story. The one who's refused returns as the savior. And in case you've missed this, Stephen actually starts to spell it out. Verse 35. 
This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And this verse is pretty cool because we get a one-sentence summary of all of Exodus. So he's really, he's really marching along here. But think about this. Jesus performed wonders and signs for Israel for two years. And after two years of his wonders and signs, and we took two years to study them, we have to stand back and wonder, how did they not recognize what was happening? But Moses did it for 40. Yet still, somehow, like Jesus, his people continued to reject him. And wait, think about it. What was Stephen doing before he was arrested? Chapter 6 says he was doing wonders and signs, exactly the same words. And how did the people respond? His Hellenistic people respond to one of their own doing wonders and signs in the name of God. They rejected him. And right now they're trying to have him killed. God, what are you doing here? I don't understand sometimes, studying the Bible, how real life can come together like this. These books are separated by 1,400 years. It's amazing. <laughs> There's no explanation other than the hand of God. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is Deuteronomy 18 verses 18 and 19. It is one of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture. And as a passage in the Torah, an important passage, it's foundational to Jewish identity. I'll read the passage for you. Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God is going to send someone, he's promising to Moses, I'm going to send someone like Moses who's going to speak with my own words, who will speak with the words of God. And whoever does not listen to this prophet, God will hold that person to account. Now, the traditional Jewish view is that this prophet, like Moses, was Joshua. But the pants are too big. The promise is bigger than Joshua can fill. He never really becomes like Moses. And this is so, so good. Because look at what God says about Jesus in the transfiguration, looking way back in, uh, in the heart of Matthew. He says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased Listen to him. And who is standing right next to Jesus in spirit when God says that to the apostles? Moses is standing right there. God is saying to Moses at the same time, here's the promise fulfilled. Here's the prophet like you. They will listen to him. And Peter actually said all of this to the Sanhedrin already, so I'm hoping they're starting to pick up on it at this point. This was the first time he was arrested in Acts 3, and I'll, I'll read to you what Peter said. 
This is what Peter said when he was before the Sanhedrin. He said, the Lord God will raise, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And they're getting the same message again from another man. And the message is, don't you get it? You rabbis, you priests, you scribes, don't you see it? The prophet, like Moses, came. And he came to you first. And you had one simple command from God. Listen to him. You are his priests. You are his teachers. He came to you first to bless you, to help you repent, and to save you from the darkness, to save you from your own wickedness. But what did you do? What did you do? Stephen continues. This Moses is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him about Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what will become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Moses received the words from God. He passed them on to his people. And in response, Israel utterly rejected him. And the golden calf, it stands as the most heinous act of rebellion Israel committed. Because worshiping the calf marked a transition. It took their rejection one step further. Because when they worshiped the calf, they were not only rejecting Moses. They had given up on Moses but they were rejecting the God who had sent him. Who made that idol for Israel? It was Aaron. If you remember, it's just awful. In the Torah, uh, Moses asks Aaron, how could this happen? And Aaron said, I threw the gold in and the calf just came out like this. It's the worst excuse in the world. But it was Aaron who did it. Aaron would become the first high priest of God. And Aaron rejoiced in the wicked work of his hands with the rest of them. And I think there's no shortage of irony here that Stephen is looking the high priest right in the face and reminding him of this story. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. All right, once we start to unpack one, this is a really, really hard idea for us turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. What does that mean? When Israel decided to worship an idol instead of the most high God, they were directing their worship to one of the hosts of heaven. They were directing their worship toward a heavenly being 
but not the God of their ancestors, not Yahweh. This is a consistent biblical teaching. It's just not consistently taught in church, so it sounds really weird to us. But Paul writes in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What scripture teaches us us, is that when people worship idols, their worship is directed to another heavenly spirit, which ought not to be worshipped. And these spirits can be evil, and the evil heavenly spirits are elsewhere by Paul called demons. This is worship of the creation instead of the creator. These are created beings. Oftentimes, in in the Hebrew mindset and in the Old Testament, the stars were seen by the Hebrews as being visible manifestations of the host of heaven. They were God's, like, physical representations of God's host. And so most pastors, many people, they skip this stuff because it's hard and it becomes confusing because we think, oh, the demons come from down there and the good guys are up there. But hell is not Satan's kingdom. He doesn't rule it. It's his punishment. And unfortunately, he's not there. He's still here terrorizing us. And so Jesus better come soon and put an end to it and stick him where he belongs. Does that kind of make sense? Stephen says Israel turned to worshiping these idols, these created spirits, just as it is written in the book of the prophets. And just a little bit of information uh, to this day, the Jews, they divide the Old Testament into three sections, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So when he says the book of the prophets, he's talking about the middle chunk of the Old Testament. That's all that means. But he quotes the book of Amos. Verse 42. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So, okay, Amos, we have another guy on the stage. He was a prophet writing just before the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. This is about 700 years before Stephen. And in these verses, Amos looks back at Israel's time in the wilderness, and he asks, and he's speaking a message from God. Did you sacrifice to me in those 40 years, Israel? Was it me that you were worshiping when you were in the wilderness? And God says, no, you were worshiping Moloch. You were worshiping the star of Raphan. And so I send you into exile beyond the Babylon. And I'm just... I need to stop for a second and tell you, it's a little bit mind-bending that I'm teaching you about Amos speaking for God, quoted by Stephen, reported by Luke. I have a really weird job. (laughs) It's really strange. But here's the point. The bird's eye point is God lets Israel choose. God chose, Israel chose to worship spiritual evil in the heavenly places, and God honored their choice. He let them worship creations and then indulge in their corruption, which is exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 1. 
Moloch, he was the Canaanite and Phoenician sky god. And Rafan is a little harder to place, but he's described as a star, and scholars believe he was probably the, one of the sun gods of Egypt. In both cases, you get it, um, Israel is worshipping some spirit in the sky. They're not worshipping the god who made them. And so Amos is telling his people, you are just like Israel in the wilderness. You always do this. You always turn against God. And by using this passage, Stephen is telling Sanhedrin the, the Sanhedrin the same thing. You always do this. You always turn against God. What's the result of rejecting God? For Moses' Israel in the wilderness, it was suffering and judgment. Their journey into the promised land was horrible because of their own sin. For Amos's northern kingdom of Israel, it was their utter destruction and exile. That was the consequence. And for the Sanhedrin listening to Stephen, they will lose absolutely everything and they will cease to exist. In all cases, this is the path they chose and they were warned and God repeatedly showed them another way. Okay, 43 verses. We are going to stop there. I'm going to catch my breath. If you found this a little bit complicated, you have really good reason. When I say something, when any of us say something, usually we're trying to make one point. In this case, the Holy Spirit in Stephen is making three arguments all at the same time. He's arguing three different things. I don't know if I made a slide out of this. I hope I did. I did. He is arguing he is no blasphemer. He is arguing that Israel always rejects her Savior. And he is arguing that the temple does not contain God. And he is doing this in a few paragraphs at the same time. And that's why this gets a little bit twisty. But it's brilliant. It is brilliant. I'm going to co comment a little bit on points one and two today, and then when we come back to these passages next time, I'm going to finish off with three when we finish the sermon. Stephen, he pulls these first two points. He's not a blasphemer. Israel always rejects her, her savior. He pulls these together brilliantly. Because do you see what's going on? Stephen is accused of, of blaspheming Moses and God. That's the accusation. But by Stephen's argument, who is continuing to blaspheme Moses and God? Who is rejecting the Savior? Who rejected the prophet who Moses promised would come after him? Stephen is saying to the 70 men gathered around him, who here is guilty of blasphemy, me or you? There's power in this argument. It is incredible. And as he demonstrates his own profound reverence and knowledge of Moses and the Torah, he proves the wretchedness of the Sanhedrin, that they're the ones in the tradition of rejecting the Savior. And he uses the Torah, which apparently he blasphemes, in order to show them his, their own hearts. They are the jealous brothers of Joseph, who rejected the Savior. They are stiff-necked Israel in the wilderness who could not follow their clear Savior who was performing signs and wonders among them.
And now Stephen stands before them, just him. And the spirit of Jesus in him exposes the Sanhedrin for exactly who they are. They have rejected God. And so I have two questions. First one is this. And if anybody has a great answer to this, like a one-liner, let me know. Why would you refuse God? Why refuse all the signs? Why refuse an offer of mercy? Why would you refuse an offer of deliverance? How do you look Jesus literally in the face as he's healing the blind and he's preaching salvation and you say to him, no thanks, it's not for me. There's a thousand explanations to that question. None of them are any good. The Sanhedrin is protecting their prestige. They have preconceived notions about the Messiah and what he's going to do for them. Jesus doesn't fit the bill. They have a spiritual blindness. We could go on and on. There's a hundred thousand excuses. But fundamentally, this all comes back to the start. And the start was, we were in paradise, and we lived with God. But then we decided it would be a good thing to decide good and evil for ourselves, and we have got good and evil all screwed up. And so what we can do, because we screwed that up, is we can look a good thing in the face, and we can call it evil. And then we can stare down that clear and wide path to destruction in hell, and we can say, this looks good. And the only way to freedom is for Jesus to give us a new heart so that we can figure out good and evil again. Which leads me to my second question. Why doesn't God give up? He saved Joseph's wicked brothers through Joseph. He saved stiff-necked Israel in the wilderness, and he brought them to the promised land. He even brought a remnant of Israel back, just as Amos promised. Why doesn't God give up on these people? Why did God send Stephen to stand before these wicked men and tell them all these things which they've heard before? Why doesn't God give up? How many times do they have to reject Jesus before Jesus throws up his hands and moves on? Doesn't. He keeps coming back. He keeps battering their hard hearts. He keeps showing them the truth, no matter how many times they turn their head to look away, because he wants to set his people free. That is our God. God is so perfectly loving to us that in our human minds it doesn't make any sense. Because he lets us choose what we worship, but all the while he never stops calling us home. It's all about Jesus. Sunday school answer. If you want to be okay, you lean on Jesus. If you want the truth, if you want to see the truth, if you want to get it black and white, you look to him. If you want to know if you're on the right path in your life, there's nowhere else to turn. Nothing else makes sense. Everything else confuses good and evil. Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and he is worthy of our worship. And so we can't reject the Savior. He is the path to life. I've got one more note. I'm going to go a little bit off topic. 
I know I'm over time, but you're not going to hear from me for a while, so you get a good break. One more note. I want to be really honest, and I've, I've talked to a few people about this, but I've hit a low spot. I am really tired. It's been a long, long haul, and I don't even know entirely where it's all coming from. It's got to be bigger than COVID, but sometimes I'm struggling to be okay. And there is this not-so-surprising perception that a pastor shows how good he is with Jesus by how cheerful he is. Is that shocking to anybody? <laughs> yeah. That's the way it goes. That's the rule. But I'm not the only one who deals with that. You're a better Christian mom when everything is great, and you tell everyone everything is great. You're a better Christian at work when you're always willing up and at her and nothing is wrong. You're a better husband, you're a better father, a better wife, son, daughter, leader, servant, when everything is all good. No big deal. But I know, I've been talking to people, I'm not the only one who's hurting right now. And so I think it's particularly useless, and I would say it is cowardly, for me to pretend I'm not where I'm at. The belief that we're okay with, with Jesus and that makes us happy is not true. Because when things are hard, it does not mean that things are wrong or that we're somehow unfaithful. I am blessed to do what I do. I am going to look back on this chapter of my life and I am going to forever see it as a tremendous privilege. I got to preach the gospel for a living in my hometown. I'm never going to forget that. It is good for me to be a pastor here. Just like it is good to be a mom, and it is good to be a dad, and it's good to have work, even when it is hard. So I want to remind you, after Elijah had the greatest triumph of his career, and he overcame the wicked prophets of Baal, he curled up in a cave and asked God to die. Moses pleaded for God on his hands and knees to remove his burden because it was beyond what he could handle. And Moses was a broken man. And now Stephen, standing before the Sanhedrin, he is doing the hardest and the holiest thing of his life. God does not give us ease. But he gives us meaning and he gives us purpose and he gives us hope, which are better than ease. He promises that his burden is lighter than the burden of this world. And the burden of this world, it still drags us down. So I want to confess it for myself and encourage you, because I know, like a lot of us, we're all over the map, right? It's okay if you're not okay. You're in great company. <laughs> you, know, you, got, you got lots of people with you now. Give yourself space. Give yourself time to rest in Jesus. You know for yourself in your walk with the Lord what works for you. You know how to connect with him. And what you need to do now is make that a priority. And I want to remind you that even Jesus, when he was feeling overwhelmed and pressed in by the crowds, what did he do? He went and found a quiet place where he could be with his father. So that's actually my plan for June. That's why I did all of that crazy juggling. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. For me, just like you, the world is wearing me down, and I just need some time with the Good Shepherd. And I just urge you, find your time with the Good Shepherd. Because everything's going to be all right, even if it's hard. And so we lean on Jesus. And that's all.
<laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are just, you are righteous, and you are loving in a way which bends our categories of love. Because how is it you, that you do not give up on the people who reject you? How is it that you love the Sanhedrin who murdered your son so dearly that you send Stephen to die at their hand? How is it that you don't give up? God, we thank you and we praise you for your love. We thank you that your love overcomes. And for all of those, those Lord, who have chosen the world, who have been dragged down by the world, and have chosen idolatry to worship spiritual evil, God, we pray that they would see the sweetness it is to walk with the Lord and to be in the truth. And we pray for all of those in our families, in our community, who have twisted good and evil and do not understand the path that they are on, that you would open their eyes, that you would lift the veil, and that they would see. And Lord, we pray for Israel, which 2,000 years later still exists only by your hand. And we pray that the veil would be lifted on their eyes and they would see that after these 2,000 years of rejection of the one who came to them first, that they have a king and they have a savior. God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for all of us who are hurting, for all of us who are sick, for all of us who are struggling, we pray that we would find the quiet space to be with you, where you have promised that you will tend to us and build us back up and remind us of who we are. And God, we pray that we would be an encouragement to each other, a community for each other. And God, we pray that we are truly coming out of this COVID pandemic so that we may be together again. And we ask you for all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website hagemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.